0: in our study of Genesis. We have made it now in our fourth week of the study to page three of the Bible, Genesis chapter three. Um, So as we're studying Genesis, I just wanna keep challenging you and reminding you to put yourself in the ancient Israelites' shoes. And if you don't know much about them, that's a little bit hard to do. So I'll try to give you clues along the way. But these guys have just been delivered from Egypt, and now they're out in the wilderness, and God has spoken to them. And can you imagine the stories in Genesis 1 and 2, the stories of creation, can you imagine the wonder that they would have felt? They've been slaves their whole life. Everything they know is slavery, and they hear this story of a creator who who speaks them into existence and delights over them and blesses them they hear about the relationship between between man and wife and and bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh and it's so beautiful oh it's like peace it's shalom and then they open their eyes and look around they're in the wilderness water is scarce, their feet are sore, their lips are chapped, the sun is hot, they've been slaves there, people are bickering here, it's scary, you got to be careful where you step because there's vipers hiding behind the rocks, and you wonder, what went wrong? Like, that sounded so good, how are we here? What happens? Turn with me to hear the devastating words of Genesis chapter 3. Now, the serpent was shrewder than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, this "Is it really true that God said, you must not eat from any tree of the orchard. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit from the trees of the orchard, but concerning the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the orchard, God said, you must not eat from it and you must not touch it or else you will die. The serpent said to the woman, surely you will not die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree produced fruit that was good for food, was attractive to the eye, and was desirable for making one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some of it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God moving about in the orchard at the breezy time of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the orchard. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, "'Where are you?' The man replied, "I, "'I heard you moving about in the orchard.'" And I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And the Lord God said, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the, The woman you gave me, she gave me some from the tree and some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent tricked me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the cattle and all the living creatures of the field. On your belly you will crawl, and dust you will eat all the days of your life, and I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your labor pains. With pain, you will give birth to children. You will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. But to Adam, he said, because you obeyed your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. In painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, but you will eat the grain of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat food until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments from skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Now that the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not be allowed to stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God expelled him from the orchard in Eden to cultivate the ground from which he had been taken. When he drove the man out, he placed on the eastern side of the orchard in Eden, angelic sentries who used the flame of a whirling sword to guard the way. To the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we're going to be quiet for a moment. Speak to us about your word. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you help us to know the depths of our sin and the reality and the hope of our redemption in your Son, Jesus. Amen. Hmm. So all it took was one question. For Eve's perspective to change entirely. A- and frankly, it was a ridiculous question. Look at it. Here's the question. Is it really true that God said you must not eat from any tree in the garden? I, I mean, the simple answer is no. Have a nice day. That's it. That could have been the end of it. And if only. In fact, I think the more you live in this story, the more you'll find yourself wanting to jump into it and change it. Like the same way that you do with any moment in your life that you think, oh, why did I say that? Why did I, why did I do that? Why did I freeze up there? You know, I think of Ebenezer Scrooge, he's in the Christmas past and, and his beloved is walking away. And the ghost of Christmas past says, Why didn't you follow her? We want to jump back in. We every regret that we have, in a way, we're reliving this story because yeah, none of us were there, and all of us were there in the garden talking to the serpent. We want to scream, don't engage Eve, walk away. But she took the bait instead. The question was a setup and she's immediately caught. You, you Pay attention to her response. In fact, I made a chart of her response. Eve's response is on the left and what you need to know about it is on the right. She, she says, I, you know, um, we can eat from any tree. But God had said, you may freely eat of any tree. It's like, it's yours. It's a joyful gift to you. She makes it simple. She says, "Um, but that one in the center, God said, you must not eat it. You must not touch it. But God never said you must not touch it. She says, if we eat it or touch it, well, we'll die. But actually, in the Hebrew, it's much stronger, and the English doesn't capture it. God said, if you eat of it, you will surely die. She has the right idea about the tree, but she's altered every part of God's word about it. She makes his generosity less grand. She makes the law more severe, and she makes the consequences more vanilla. She does exactly what we do. With God's word. Hook, line, and sinker, and now the serpent can just reel her in. She's already questioning the word, and now he just has to lean a little bit, and she'll question God's character, his integrity. You won't surely die, he says. The serpent correctly quotes God. You won't surely die. He knows his word better than she does in this moment. Instead, he says, eating it will make you like God, knowing good and evil in the way he does. Now, now all Eve can see is the tree. You know, like when you decide you want a new car and suddenly the model that you want, like everyone on the road is driving that car. You know that all she can this one tree is everything. It's like, oh, the tree. She it's oh, it looks good. She knows it tastes good. And plus it'll make her wise. That, gosh, her her heart has already changed. The giver of the trees is cast in a very different light than he used to be. He's not the generous creator who says, Eat anything to your heart's delight. He's withholding. He's selfish. He's jealous. He doesn't want you to be as good as him. That's what she sees. And it only took one question. The action unfolds so fast. She took. She ate. She gave. Oh, and he ate. That's right. Eve's not alone. And there's Adam standing right there, silent, complicit, He's like the second rebellious kid in class waiting for the one to do the wrong thing and then like, oh, I'll do it too, you know? (laughs) That, friends, that moment is the corruption of the world. We call that the fall of humanity, the fall of creation, a bit of picked fruit shared by two people. So why is that such a big deal? Why? D- d- after all, doesn't every parent or teacher want their kids to know right from wrong, good and evil, so that they can make good decisions? Well, let's let's talk about the fruit and the effects of the fruit, the consequences of the fruit, and the remedy for the fruit. Okay? So first, the fruit. In English, it, the, the tree just... It just doesn't sound bad. In fact, it sounds good. The knowledge of good and evil, right? That's good knowledge to have, right? If you can identify what's good and what's bad, what's right and wrong, you can you can make good decisions. In fact, that's exactly what Eve thought. This is gonna make me wise. That's what she, uh, great, that's what she thought. And even if that's what she thought, despite what I'm gonna teach you about the Hebrew in a second, Her motivations are exposed in really a brutal way. She wants what only God has. She doesn't want the ability to just identify good and evil. She wants the ability to determine what is good and what is evil. To name it, to judge it. One scholar, Bruce Waltke, puts it so powerfully. He says, they are not seeking more information Hunger for power that comes from knowledge. You see, our concept of knowledge is just information. You have more information in your head. You have knowledge. But in Hebrew, the word knowledge is more experiential. In the Bible, it often is said, a man knew his wife, which can lead to pregnancy. (laughs) Okay? It's a more experiential knowledge. It's a deeper engagement with it. And and so this this tree is not just knowing things, it's experiencing them and multiplying them. And we've got to understand the serpent's game here with this. Friends, everything he offers to Eve and Silent Adam, they already have. That's why you've got to see this. If you want to read this rightly. Everything he offers to them, they already have. All right, the way Eve sees the tree, that's exactly how all of the trees were described in chapter 2. They're good to look at. They're pleasing to the eye. They're good for food. They already have that, all right? they, they, They already have the ability to discern between right and wrong. Haven't they been already being taught all along? God is, as as God's creating, he's there with them saying, that's good, that's good. Oh, Adam, you're alone. That's not good. And then he creates woman. That's so good. He showed, you know, this tree, not good. The rest of them, great. He's teaching them. God intends to teach them. He has every intention to teach them. But the biggest, the biggest one, the big lie of the serpent is if you eat it, you'll be like God. Now, what's the lie there? Is the lie that the fruit will make them like God? No. Friends, we already know from chapter 1. God created them in his image and likeness. They are as like God as they could possibly B, the lie isn't that the fruit will make you like God. The lie is that they're not like God right now. He gets them to believe less about themselves. For a moment, we need to go back to the Israelites in the wilderness. Those are the first people hearing Genesis. The first time that they heard the voice of God was at Mount Sinai. where they heard the Ten Commandments, right? That was God's voice. That's what they associated with God's voice. And friends, I don't have time to tell you all the amazing connections between the Ten Commandments and these stories, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, but that'd be a fun study for someone to do sometime. All right, the connections is amazing, but the people in Israel, the Israelites, wouldn't have missed it. But I, I'm curious, thinking about the Ten Commandments, which, which law is broken when they eat the fruit? Like, how do you think of the first sin? What's the first sin? People say pride or selfishness, self-reliance, whatever. What's the first sin? Well, gosh, I'm just going to work my way down the Ten Commandments. Let's see. Uh, commandment one is, No God's before me. You can see idolatry and blasphemy. They're attempting to be independent of or equal to God. In a way, he didn't want them to. Commandment two is don't make an idol. Well, they're worshiping an object. This fruit can give me what God said he wanted to give me. Commandment three is don't misuse God's name. But the serpent and Eve are tarnishing God's reputation in this whole conversation. Commandment four is to remember and keep the Sabbath, which is the seventh day. That's the day they're living in. This is all happening on the long, beautiful seventh day. And yet the serpent has encouraged them to work to get something that wasn't freely given to them. That's work. Commandment five is honor your father and mother. They're dishonoring God as their father in this moment. Later, uh, commandment seven, skipping commandment six, is murder. Well, Eve knows this fruit could kill me. Here you go, Adam. <laughs> it's like a murder suicide. <laughs> Do not steal. Well, the fruit they take isn't theirs. Don't bear false witness. Eve and the serpent distort God's word in every part of this conversation. And the tenth commandment is don't covet. But Eve looks at something that's not hers, and she desires it in her heart. I mean, the only one I couldn't find a clean fit for was adultery in this. But the whole rest of the story messes up their marriage. Not to mention that this is simple, raw disobedience, fueled by a lack of trust in God's character. What's the fruit? Why is it such a big deal? Well, that's why. That's why. So, what are the effects of the fruit? What happens immediately after eat it? They they're like, like they're naked. I'm. It's cold. I'm windy in here. Like just a few verses ago, they're in bliss. They're naked and not ashamed. That means now, they are ashamed. But why? What is it that uh, makes them feel shame? And what is shame? Okay, Dr. Kurt Thompson has written extensively on shame. There's a great book, The Soul of Shame, and he makes a simple distinction between guilt and shame. All right? Guilt is when I recognize that I did bad. Shame is when I recognize that I am bad. Guilt is about an action. That action was wrong. Shame is about identity. And they're feeling an identity crisis in this moment. Why? Claiming the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil is claiming the authority to determine what is good and what is bad, right? What is good and what is evil? And the first thing that they see is themselves. They have just disobeyed God and they can recognize the truth. We have been distorted we have become evil. The shame they're feeling is real. We are afraid. We are not lovely anymore. We're not lovable anymore. They hide from themselves, from each other, and from God. And the implications are devastating. The people who have stolen the authority and right to judge what is good and what is evil, they now see themselves as evil. And they immediately are trying to hide it so that other people don't realize. In other words, the judge is corrupt. Friends, in any justice system, the worst possible thing is if you have corrupt judges, right? And the human race itself has taken the authority to judge and corrupted themselves in the process. And so God comes looking for them. And his heart is on display. See the heart of the creator. Rather, he knows, he knows what's happened. But rather than bringing judgment and punishment immediately, he dignifies them. Why are you hiding? Who, who told you? You're naked. Did, did you eat the fruit? He invites confession. And, and this is a powerful moment. We do confession every Sunday, all right? And sometimes it can feel wooden or stiff or like, oh, I don't want to pray those words. But the reason we practice it every Sunday is because in this new reality, this is how God invites us to come to him. We come to him first acknowledging our fallen reality, to take responsibility and cast ourselves on his mercy. But their confession even has been tarnished by the fruit Remember, they're the judge now. They get to determine good and evil. And so Adam says, well, the woman who you gave me made me do this. It's her fault. It's your fault. The woman says, the serpent, he made me do it. Like their confession is basically, it's not my fault, God. Again, we could play the what if game with every part of this passage we could try to go back and what would we change but this one i i just wonder if they simply confessed if they owned what they had done completely if they beat their breasts and begged for mercy what would have happened there's moments in the bible where we see in the book of isaiah the prophet isaiah finds himself in the presence of god and he realizes as he looks on god's holiness and beauty how Yucky, he is. And he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. He wants to die. And immediately, an angelic sentry who has fire next to him. Does that sound similar to our story? Takes a piece of coal out of the fire and touches Isaiah's lips. He's cleansed. By the very fire that seems so terrifying. Alas, Adam and Eve's hearts are not repentant. They want to face the consequences. And so, what are the consequences? God renders a just judgment here. I could spend a long time on this, I won't. Um, The first one is directed at the serpent. And here's the deal I don't like snakes. Probably most of you don't like snakes, right? Okay, yeah. Snakes are creepy. The point of this isn't that all snakes are the ultimate enemy and the source of all sin. I don't even know if it's saying that that the ancestor of all snakes had legs, right? I don't know that that's necessarily what it's saying. What it's saying is that this serpent has been inhabited and taken over by a dark power. None of the Israelites would have thought oh, it makes sense that an animal can talk. Like this, this creature has been taken over by a dark power and now he's being humiliated. You'll crawl in the dust, all right? And you will be in battle with the wom- woman's offspring for all of your generations. A battle is starting now that will continue on. That's what happens to the serpent, and that has impacted every corner and moment of history ever since. Now, to the woman, God talks about her offspring. Her family life will be painful. It'll be riddled with pain. Childbirth and marriage are going to be hard. Raising your kids is going to be hard. It's all been distorted. Why? Because you distorted it with a power grab. When he describes the relationship between husband and wife, you know, it's it's a power battle, isn't it? It's a struggle for power. You'll try to control him, he'll dominate you. This isn't telling us the proper marriage roles here. This is telling us what it looks like in the fall when we're fighting for power. The beauty that had been in Genesis 2, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh is replaced by manipulation and domination and for the rest of the biblical story we we rarely get to see a healthy marriage you guys the heroes of the bible they don't have healthy marriages there's like maybe two in the whole bible that seems like oh nice marriage the rest yeah like lots of problems and we'll see a lot of it in genesis Even Genesis 3 wants us to look at the marriage. Most of the time, it refers to them as the husband and the wife throughout Genesis 3. And now the man who before had the joyful work of just freely receiving in the garden. That was his job, just the ministry of receiving. Ah, I love this fruit. I love this fruit. Have some of this. That was his job before. The ministry of receiving has been replaced By the toil of earning, you must justify yourself and your existence. The ground will produce thorns, it will scrape and cut you as you work in it. And every time you dig in the dust, you'll be reminded that you're digging your own grave because you're returning to the ground. Is there any hope? Is there any remedy? Friends, the remedy is written all over this story. Adam has not lost his faith. In fact, in fact, he names his wife Eve. You will be the mother of all the living. Despite our sin, despite the death we've brought, life will continue. Adam is still, he still has some faith. And God's response to them is so tender They've, put, they've made these pathetic little clothes of fig leaves. They're not going to last the day. And what does God do? Friends, the first death in the Bible, you have to read between the lines, is the animals that God himself kills to cover their shame. This is the foundation of sacrifice. Go, only God, through a death, can cover our shame. And he does it. He... he He sews together clothes for them. Only God adequately can do it. And when they're banished from the garden, it's a judgment and a mercy. Because in this state, in this corrupted state, to continue on and on and on, their miseries will multiply beyond belief. And so God places two angelic warriors with flaming swords to guard the tree and to protect Adam and Eve. Now, come back with me to the wilderness. The Israelites, having just been freed from Egypt, now they're getting the law, and God gives them all of these instructions. He actually tells them, you're going to build this majestic tent. Welcome back, kids. You can find your uh, parents. Okay, he tells them, you're going to build this majestic tent called the tabernacle. And inside the tabernacle is where the presence of God will be, the ark, the stones, with the Ten Commandments written on it. That's where God will be with you. But you've got to guard that space. And so what are they told to do? They're told to make a curtain that guards that space, and they're going to embroider that curtain with this picture of two flaming angels on the curtain, all right? And there it is, guarded. And then later on, they build a temple, the permanent tabernacle, and there's this giant curtain with two angels, you know, sewn into it, guarding the space, guarding the presence of God, reminding the people of the angels with the whirling swords, whatever that means. <laughs> right. And now, friends, see Jesus the offspring of the woman. And he has received a fatal blow to his heel. He's hanging and dying on a cross and he's crowned with thorns, thorns, just like the ones that cut and scrape Adam in the dirt. And as he breathes his last, the curtain that has the angels on it, is torn in two. Now, hear Jesus at the Last Supper. You guys, Jesus was there. The the word of God was there in the garden. Adam heard God coming. He heard his voice. That's the presence of Jesus. He was there to see the woman, take, eat, give, and he ate. He was there for that. Now, I wonder what Jesus has in mind when he gathers his friends together at the table. And he lifts up the bread, and he gives thanks for it, and he breaks it, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. Do you hear that? He he takes the bread. He blesses it with his life. And he gives it. He's not just the new and better Adam. He's the new and better Eve. He's receiving what God has freely given and sharing it in a way that overcomes this moment. Here is the fruit that is the remedy for that fruit. In the same way after supper, He takes the cup, the fruit of the vine. And he says, this is my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Friends, every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we remember a death. But it's no longer the death that we constantly remember. It's no longer the death that was brought on by the fruit. It's the death of Jesus, which has wiped that fruit away healed us. Friends, however you've participated in the fall this week, the curtain is torn and you have access to the presence of God. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. Come back to the garden and practice the ministry.